So if, as the Bible says, God is the perfect and the holy and the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the entire universe, then not only is it fitting that God should direct all of history and creation toward the full demonstration of his glory and might, but it would be the greatest tragedy if he did not ensure that it was so. I know that was a lot. Let me say it again. <laughs> if, as the Bible teaches us, God is the perfect and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the entire universe, then not only is it fitting that God should direct all of history and creation toward the full demonstration of his glory and power, but it would be the greatest tragedy if he did not ensure that it was so. This is an all-encompassing vision that God has for his creation and for us. And this vision of God deserving all glory and directing all creation toward that end explains the climactic last verse of our passage in Isaiah 9 today. Look with me, if you would, at Isaiah 9, verse 7. It says this, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This word zeal is packed with a lot of... Uh, a lot of Bible into it because it's used in a number of places. We sometimes talk about this interpretive principle we use of Scripture, interpreting Scripture. And uh, we're going to do that for just a bit here. This word zeal is used in a bunch of places. It's used in Proverbs 6 to describe a husband's jealous love for his wife. It's used in Song of Solomon to describe the love that burns in the hearts of a young bride and groom as they're standing there being married. Some of you probably remember some of those feelings a little bit. Um, Isaiah 42 pictures God as a warrior psyching himself up before going out to battle by saying he stirs up his zeal. Psalm 79, Zephaniah 1, Zephaniah 3, they all speak of God's zeal that burns like fire. Deuteronomy 2 and Hebrews 12, they say that God is a consuming fire, a zealous God. When Jesus walks through the temple courts to throw out the crooks and the money changers who were perverting the temple, the apostle John quotes from Psalm 69 to explain Jesus's passion by saying, zeal for your house has consumed me. Friends, God is not weak. He is not powerless to bring about the full demonstration of his glory and might. And friends, Jesus is not just some nice, gentle hippie in a dress. He is what the Bible calls here the Lord of hosts, <laughs> meaning he's supreme beyond all competitors. And he's come to save the world from its own sin. And Isaiah 9, 7, he reminds us that God himself has a white, hot intensity to accomplish his plans in ways none of us could possibly begin to understand in detailed form. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's speaking in what we call the prophetic 
present. It's used throughout this passage. The Bible reports these kinds of future things as if they're already done so that the people who hear them would have a hope that they come from the kind of power that God alone has. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The question for us today is what is the this (laughs) for which God is so zealous here? What's the this for which he is so zealous. When the Old Testament people of God first heard these words in Isaiah 9, they were asking the same kind of question. They were quite interested in knowing what the this was that God was so zealous for when they heard Isaiah's prophecy, because things for them at the time were pretty ugly, actually. They were pretty ugly, and they were getting worse. The kings had led them astray. Their enemies, the Assyrians, they had invaded some of their own land. They would soon be taking over more of their land. They were turning to worship of foreign gods and idols. They were becoming zealous for their own power and might in contrast to glorifying God. So in Isaiah's day, things were getting ugly and the supernatural intervention of God was their only hope. The last verse of Isaiah 8 summarizes this situation well. When it says this, look at verse 22 just a little bit before our passage here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah summarizes the situation like this. He says, and they will look to the earth, meaning the people of God will look around them for help, but behold, everywhere they look, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The Assyrian enemies were on their way to overwhelm God's people in their own land with a military might and power that is described earlier in Isaiah 8 as a river flooding its banks. It says it's going to sweep onto Judah. It's going to overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. The people of God would soon be up to their necks in what Isaiah calls here the gloom of anguish. So, Isaiah the prophet brought them desperately needed words of encouragement about their future. Friends, do you need desperately needed words of encouragement about your future today? I know I do. Truth is, in the middle of a a season supposedly full of joy and cheer and chocolate, truth is I am tired, I am burned out, I am overwhelmed, I am grumpy, I am uptight, and the last thing I want to do is watch a cheesy Christmas movie about a boy on a train who doesn't believe in Santa Claus. But we're going to use that movie in our sermon today. (laughs) So here are Isaiah's words of encouragement that the people of God needed then, and obviously Um, I and hopefully some of you need now. Look at this, Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. It doesn't say there will be a hint of, it will say, that it says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
And then it says, in the former time, meaning in the past, remember this is Isaiah's words to them there, speaking in what we call a prophetic present as if it's as good as done. In the former time, in the past, God brought into contempt, verse 1, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are two of the 12 tribes of Israel here that are mentioned because uh, they were the hardest hit at the time by the Assyrian invaders. And they were the ones that were also the most influenced by the pagan godless cultures around them. And so it said in the past, God brought judgment to his people through the Assyrians. But in the latter time, keep reading verse 1, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, this is really cool what's, what's being said here. These little phrases here in 1b, the second half of verse 1, they are surprisingly, unexpectedly actually, predicting that of all the places from which the help would come, it would be east of the Jordan, on the other side, beyond their lands. So what in verse 1 is happening here is that it's saying that what has been in the former time a relatively little and powerless and even too influenced by pagan culture, uh, part of the land of the people of God, is going to be made glorious. And here's why. There's a little village in Zebulun called, maybe you've heard of it, Nazareth. And the land of Naphtali contained a really important town that later on Matthew would call upon because it, con it contains Capernaum. That's, that's an important town that Matthew would later draw on the words of Isaiah to announce the coming of Jesus. So verse 1 is packing into it geographically all this meaning of what was a land of contempt and judgment will become a base for announcing God's kingdom. Isaiah is himself here announcing that hope in these verses. Keep reading. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. As we've already said, this is a prophetic passage. It's a vision of the future that's described to them as if it's already taken place which is a way of saying, I know it feels like gloom of anguish now, but if God is who he claims to be, who he's been in the past, he will make this happen. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, which means the hope of heaven can be now for you. And since it's a vision that ultimately comes from God, who is zealous to carry out his plans, to bring himself glory. And as we're beginning to see here, to rescue his people, it's as good as done. <laughs> and this good as done sort of dynamic here is carried through in the next few verses. Look at this in verse 3 and following. You have multiplied the nation. Isaiah turns to speak to God here. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, which to them then would have sounded like, what are you talking about? We're being invaded. Our people are worshiping foreign gods. But it's as good as done if God is who he claims to be, so you can have hope now, Isaiah is saying. God's multiplied the nations, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And here's why. Look at this, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now those first three, first three 
little phrases there in verse 4, the yoke of his burden, the staff or his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. These describe all the various ways and instruments uh, that enemies like the Assyrians would use to subjugate the people and that they were subjugating with them with right then. It was all the ways that they would tax them unfairly and, and domineer them and, and, and force them to slave labor. So all of those things at the first part of verse 4, the yoke of their burden, the staff of their shoulder, the rod of their oppressors, it says, you, meaning God, God has broken as on the day of Midian. Meaning, by using unlikely means to overthrow what seems like a massive enemy, especially to the people of God at the time. Here's what this means. On the day of Midian here refers to when Gideon led only 300 of his men to overthrow the entire Midianite army. And he did so by sneaking into the camp, uh, blowing trumpets, breaking jars, and holding up torches, which when you think about it, not exactly a great military strategy. When there are only 300 going against many thousands of a more powerful army. In fact, God's victory that's being prophesied here in Isaiah is not only going to be unexpected as on the day of Midian, but it's going to be a total and a final victory. That's what verse 5 says. Keep reading. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Rever uh, verse 5 recalls uh, when in battle the victor would take all of the military equipment of the enemy army and they would set it on fire as a celebration of their victory, but also as a way to rid the earth of their opponents. In other words, verse 5 says, God's victory in what he's going to do starting in verse 6 and following here, it's a total victory. It comes from an unexpected place, it comes in unexpected ways, and it's a total victory. So God's unexpected total victory over an oppressor that's more powerful than the people of God will come from an unexpected place and in an unexpected way. So in the Christmas movie, The Polar Express, there's a young boy of about eight or nine who really badly wants to believe in Santa. Uh, he's been staying up all night for years. Um, he's been saving clippings about Santa He's reading encyclopedia articles about the North Pole, trying to figure out if life is possible there. Um, he's been listening intently for the, the sleigh bells in the rooftop, but he, but he can't hear them. He's trying to find out the truth about Santa. But this boy has serious doubts until uh, one Christmas Eve, uh, a magical train comes by the front of his house, you know, like they, they do. Um, and he reluctantly boards this train. And this train takes him on a journey um, that he doesn't uh, even remotely expect. Check this out. Well, you coming? to the North Pole, of course. This is the Polar Express. The North Pole? I 
Nice. Hold this, please. Thank you. Is this you? Yeah. Well, it says here, no photo with the department store Santa this year. No letter to Santa. And you made your sister put up the milk and cookies. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me like this is your crucial year. If I were you, I would think about climbing on board. Come on, come on, come on. I've got a schedule to keep... Oh! Suit yourself. Out of that action for two letters. <coughs> Strikes me that the conductor sounds a lot like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> While it's certainly um, unwarranted and quite a stretch to say that the journey of um, a young cartoon boy in a Christmas movie about Santa is uh, just like the journey of the people of God in actual history, it's obviously a, an unwarranted stretch to say that. Um, it isn't a stretch to say that he experiences in this movie um, a lot of really unexpected evidences uh, of some force beyond his control that was showing him that Santa was the real deal. You saw a little bit of that uh, in those clips there, and you'll see some uh, of the tying up of those loose ends later on. There's a sense in which it's, it's really no different for the people of God. 
from an unlikely place and in a very unexpected way would come the victory of God over their own enemies. Look at verses 6 and following. It describes God's unexpected and total victory over his and our enemies. It says, for to us, to the people of God, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. And the government, meaning the authority to to govern, shall be upon his shoulder. Singular, his shoulder. This child's going to lay claim to all authority. And his name, actually four names, because it takes that many, to describe who he really is, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, which is a way to say he's supernaturally wise. His name is Mighty God, meaning he is in himself Almighty God. He's the Everlasting Father, meaning he's the father of, of all eternity who has always existed. And he's the Prince of Peace, meaning he's going to bring peace and rest for eternity to his people. And if it isn't yet clear here, this isn't just some earthly rule and reign as we think of it. right? Like, like Isaiah's not just describing here what we think of as the kind of king that we would hope would give us strength and might in worldly terms to take care of our worldly problems. This is a king that can do way more than take care of all your little temporary earthly problems, which feel like the end of the world, but aren't. Here's why. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Which which is to say, it's not just that his kingdom is big, It's that it keeps on increasing forever as a way to describe that the vast expanse of God's rule and reign, it knows no bounds. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. No one's ever going to throw this king that comes from the line of David, who is At the same time, don't forget, as verse 6 tells us, a child, a king who was a child. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When you think about it, only the supernatural work of a God beyond our greatest thoughts of him who created all that is could do this. The words of Isaiah here in chapter 9, they're an encouragement of God's promises because of God's power. His zeal for his glory not only will be done, but has been done in Jesus. Friends, the God of heaven, think about this. The God of heaven is so far superior to the kingdoms of this world and the enemies in our lives and the anxieties of our hearts. That he can defeat them all through a mere child. God's answer to the evil in this world, the evil in this world that flaunts its power and its wealth and its prestige 
God's answer to that is not to take those things on with more power and more wealth and more prestige in the world's ways, but it's to send a child to do his work so that he can prove that he is powerful. He is beyond our understanding. It comes from unexpected places and unexpected ways. That's the power of a God who is amazing. And, and while we don't know um, all of the ways God's zeal for the full demonstration of his glory and might plays out, we do know that his zeal, his zeal for his glory became flesh in Jesus in an unexpected and in a truly amazing way. In the Polar Express, um, our doubting boy has been led on this unexpected journey, um, a very improbable journey. Um, and, and if you watch it, you'll see, looking throughout the movie, there are all these ways in which um, he's not seeing it, uh, but people around him and, and other children and, and the conductor are trying to say, hello, <laughs> Santa's real. He says it himself at the end that this has been an amazing and improbable and an unexpected journey. When he realizes, as we're going to see here at the end, that Santa's real, <clears throat> that the conductor was calling him to believe all along, and that, yes, Santa was even able to deliver all of the presents to all of the children before the train dropped him off at home from the North Pole. Check this out. Oh, you better watch out. Better not sigh. Better not talk. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. that you said I, I believe <laughs> 
leave. Thank you. Take it, please. Lean. Whatever that's supposed to mean. Lean is spelled with four letters. I believed I'd punch five. Hey, are you saying I don't know how to... Oh, I'm sorry. It says learn. My mistake. Lesson learned. Take it. That is some special ticket. Sure is. So, can you count on us to get you home safe and sound? Absolutely. Me. And my friends. Ticket. This is lead. Like lead balloon. I believe it also was pronounced lead, as in leader, leadership. Lead the way. Follow you anywhere, ma'am. Ah, yes. Young man with all the questions. Ticket. Nothing I need to know. Next stop, 11344, Edbrook. Hey, where are you going? Home. Oh, okay. Merry Christmas. Thanks for stopping that train for me. A wonderful Christmas. Watch your step, please. And Merry Christmas. What's amazing, friend, is, uh, <coughs> like we said earlier, Jesus is not just some hippie in a dress who says wise things. He is not some jolly and portly man who delivers presents. He's king of the universe. And he saves us from our sins. That's what's amazing. In the final analysis, when it's all said and done, and, and God's people are enjoying 
perfect relationship with him in heaven. They're going to look at each other. We will look at each other, and we will say, this amazing work was accomplished by the zeal of the Lord on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we give you praise and glory because you deserve it. You have made a way for us to have forever relationship with you when we didn't deserve it. We thank you for sending us, your son, Jesus. We thank you for sending yourself to us to live a perfect, sinless, righteous life for us on our behalf that would serve as a sacrifice to make up for our sin. We love you for that amazing truth, Lord. And we ask that during this season where there's extra stress and high expectations and the temptation of making things about the trimmings, Lord, that you would remind us in our hearts that this baby you sent is king of the universe, and we bow before him. In his name we pray, amen.